working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is award-winning drummer, author, historian, and educator, Daniel Glass. Daniel is widely recognized as an authority on classic American drumming and the evolution of American popular music. Daniel was a member of the pioneering swing group Royal Crown Review from 94 to 2014. He has recorded and performed all over the world with many top artists, including Brian Setzer, Bette Midler, Liza Minnelli, and countless others. For two years running, Daniel was voted one of the top five R&B drummers in the world by readers of Modern Drummer and Drum Magazine. Since 2011, he has been the house drummer every Monday night at New York's legendary Birdland Jazz Club. As an educator, Daniel has published five books and three DVDs, including award-winning titles, The Century Project, The Roots of Rock Drumming, and The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. He's a regular contributor to publications like Modern Drummer, Drum, and Classic Drummer. He's performed hundreds of clinics and master classes globally, appearing at many of the world's top educational conferences and music festivals. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net to find out more information about this episode and all the episodes that we've done so far in the last three and a half years. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us now on YouTube. We are slowly building our library of past episodes. When you're on iTunes, please subscribe. This helps us grow. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you use the hashtag WorkingDrummer, We'll include you on Instagram and our stories. If you want to support what Zach and I are doing here at the Working Drummer Podcast, there's a couple ways that you can do that. On the homepage of our website, workingdrummer.net, you can find a button for PayPal. There's also a button that is a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is an easy and convenient way to support the podcast on a regular basis. Donations start at a dollar and you have access to the bonus material that we're providing on a monthly basis from past guests. As always, any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. As we've mentioned many times before, writing reviews on iTunes or even YouTube helps support this podcast. And one way we'd like to motivate those of you who would like to support us in that way, we are starting to read some of those reviews. Here's one on iTunes by JazzFan. Zach and Matt are great hosts who ask insightful and thoughtful questions because they are full-time working drummers themselves. Both hosts seem to have different backgrounds, musical experiences, contacts, and live in different cities, which provides a nice variety of guests and topics. So it's very nice to say uh, I, I hope that you all feel that way. It is one of the nice things about having someone like Zach to share the host duties because he offers a nice, different perspective than mine. But uh, thanks so much for that from JazzFan on iTunes. Please submit any comments on these platforms and be happy to do a shout-out and mention you on this. So here you go, my conversation with Daniel Glass. I don't know if I told you I've been working with one of the real housewives of New York, which I know sounds bizarre, and it is slightly, but it's actually been a really fun gig, <laughs> and we just played down in Atlanta, and uh, it was great. 
it was cool. I was only there for a day, but um, I've always liked that city. It's a good city. Yeah. Yeah, I used to complain about the traffic uh, go, having to go through Atlanta, but Nashville's no different now, so I, I really don't have any way to complain about the differences. <laughs> right. well, well, one of the things I, I do like to start with is I like to kind of find out, like, what's what's on the agenda? Like, what's what's the current news going on? Can you tell us a little bit more about this gig? Like, what is the gig? I assume you're not one of the wives. Yeah. I assume... <laughs> Um, yeah, it's been going for like a year We're we're actually on a little bit of a break, but, um, she doesn't take very many breaks, at least so far. Uh, it's, her name is, uh, the Countess Luanne de la Seps. Holy cow. Which sounds very fancy, but she's actually, uh, a gal that has been on the Real Housewives of New York since the show first started, which already is like 11 seasons ago. I don't know if that's 11 years ago. And, um... She decided that she wanted to create a cabaret show here in New York where I live. There's a, a huge cabaret scene, um, a lot of amazing people involved with it. And um, it's sort of hard to explain. I guess it's like, you know, it's, it's a cabaret show, at least in the, the sense of New York, is, is um, more of an intimate show, which features a singer and usually a small combo of some kind. And, um, you know, they're telling stories, singing songs. It's more of a personal kind of a thing. A lot of times cabaret shows have like, um, a theme, you know, the songs of Edie Gourmet or, um, talking about a certain part of their life or something they've done. So it's sort of a a bit more theatrical than just like a concert. Yes. And the Monday night gig that I do at Birdland centers a lot around the people in the cabaret scene and also the Broadway world. Cause a lot of Broadway people do cabaret shows when they're not in a Broadway show. Gotcha. And it's a very New York kind of a thing. Um, and I've, the, the, the gig I do on Mondays, I'm working with like sort of the highest level people in this cabaret Broadway world, which is really nice. The musical director on the show is a guy named Billy stretch who, um, <clears throat> was Liza Minnelli's musical director for, 25 years and um when he's not doing the gig then usually it's a guy named ted firth who's michael feinstein's musical director and wow. they work with a lot of a really high level kind of people that maybe the re- you know out in the, in the in the regular world aren't that well known but in this kind of cabaret broadway world these people are, are huge so i do that gig at birdland every monday i've been doing that every monday for nine years it's an incredible wow. experience i've done a okay. couple of my own yeah, my own my own podcast shows about it. Uh-huh. Basically, it's um it's like an open mic night. The the show is called um, Cast Party, and mm-hmm. the idea was it was started on Mondays because Mondays at least used to be was the typical night that Broadway shows were were dark. So um, it actually began at Liza Minnelli's apartment. Uh, the show's been going for 18 years, and I've I'm the new guy. I've been doing it for nine, <laughs> and that's it's a whole incredible tale how that gig came to pass. They didn't have a drummer and I moved to New York. Um, and about six months after I moved here, somebody invited me down to just sit in cause it's like a, a sit in night. So, uh, I brought my cymbals, threw them up and basically I played one tune and they were like, you know, do you want to stay up? Yeah. And I ended up playing with all the rest of the guests that sat in that night. And they said, you want to come back next week? And I came back and then I just became the thing that wouldn't leave. And <laughs> after a few months, they hired me. And um, 
I've been doing the gig ever since, and it's led to just a huge amount of, of work here in New York, and it's including this gig with, with The Real Housewives, okay. which I'm sort of getting to in a roundabout way. So uh, anyway, it, it's, um, it's, it's a fantastic gig because all kinds of people come. We never have any idea who's going to sit in. It's usually at least 20 to 30 people sitting in every, every week. And, you know, very high level people often, it's not your grandma's open mic night at the coffee house. It's mm-hmm. the Birdland and, you know, Liza Minnelli, Barry Manilow, Cheetah Rivera, uh, a lot of pop stars, Kenny Loggins, Art Garfunkel, um, a lot of famous actors, Bette Midler, Jonathan Price, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. You never know who's going to come in. Um, is there a book? Uh, a lot of famous songwriters. Is there a book? No that book. You got? Okay. We literally, no, we literally have no idea what we're going to play and people will bring charts. Often I don't get a chart and I'm just telegraphing off of the ND. Uh-huh. It's basically, it's a jazz trio. Yeah, and anything I've played, don't stop believing. I've played, <laughs> you know, country tunes. I've played rock tunes. I've played funk tunes. It, you know, mostly it's a lot of Great American Songbook and standards sure. and that kind of stuff. But sure. also a lot of, um, you know, the world of Broadway is so deep. There's so many musicals that, I mean, I I think I know a fair amount. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a history guy. I'm a styles guy. I'm a researcher. I'm a, a historian. So I've, I've convinced an enormous amount of music in my, in my career, in my life. But, um, there'll be songs that like, I don't even know the musical that the song is from, let alone the song. And the, and a lot of these modern musicals, there's all kinds of, you know, Dear Evan Hansen and, uh, those kind of, of, uh, those kind of shows have a lot of odd time stuff and a lot of breaks. And a lot of times I'm just, I'm just winging it. So anyway, I've been doing this gig and a lot of other work that I, that I now do in New York has come out of that. And, um, so this real housewife, uh, loves, has been coming to our, to our Monday night at Birdland for a while. And she would sit in occasionally and she decided she wanted to put together her own cabaret show. So she put it together, but because she's a huge TV star the thing has just been selling out like crazy. So we started in a small club in New York uh, called 54 Below, which is a cabaret room. And within uh, uh, six months, we were doing big theaters. And so this year, we we do a lot of hits. At, uh, we played a place in Atlanta. We were just talking about Atlanta. We played, uh, um, oh, no, I can't. The, uh, it's an old cathedral. And uh, it's like 3,000 people. We played the Chicago Theater, which is 4,000 people. We played um, just incredible rooms all over the country. And it's a, it's a really cool show. Um, we have a great five-piece band, really great top New York musicians. And um, it's a really wide variety of material. She has, like a, she has a lot of guests. She has a comedian. She has a Broadway guy come out. So it's a kind of a bizarre gig, but that's one of the gigs I've been doing. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a cool gig. And, and I mean, if we're talking working drummer here, yes. you know, I, I, I often sound like a, like a broken record, but people, people say to me, well, it's nice that you know about all these sort of historical styles of music, but I'm really a 21st century rock guy Yeah, or, you know, 
I don't play any of that stuff. I'm a this kind of drummer or a that kind of drummer. Yeah. And all I have to say is I worked over 200 gigs last year, mostly in town, um, some on the road, but as a working drummer, I am a working drummer, even though I may have a slightly higher profile than, you know, than, than some, but, um, Hey man, I'm a working drummer. And I, because yeah. I know somebody calls a 1950 Sinatra tune, I know exactly how to make that sound as authentic as possible within 10 seconds. If somebody calls uh, a Lewis Jordan kind of a jump blues thing, I know exactly what to do with that. If somebody calls uh, a country thing, I know what to do with that. If somebody calls a Sarah Bareilles singer songwriter thing, mm. I know what to do with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, not, I'm not, I'm not trying to like say, Oh, I'm so great. What I'm saying is there's a real reason why it will benefit drummers today to learn more about their history, their evolution, and to understand better, you know, how these things fit into the big picture. Like that's what I'm always trying to share with people. Like here's the big picture. And through my various books and DVDs, I sort of go into, you know, go down various pathways with, with, with those different things. So I have a book, for example, about shuffles and about um, right. rhythm and blues styles, right. basically blues styles. And, uh, you know, the, the idea is that the more you know about your evolution, um, the more context you'll have and the more kind of work that you'll get. And just one, one more example, then I'll, I'll shut my mouth. But the, the, uh, um, I forget who it was. I was just in Russia for 10 days. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was awesome. But I met a guy out there who was like, yeah, I just, um, got started playing in a surf band (laughs) and I never, ever thought that was something I would do, but I, that's why I'm here buying your book, um, you know, about these kind of styles of music, forties and fifties shuffles and all the things surrounding them. Um, because this is a band that's working, you know, and it's, it, those things kind of happen all the time. It's like you're playing, you think you're doing one thing, suddenly something else comes up. Are you prepared to deal with that opportunity, right. take advantage of it and turn it into work? Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know how to be any clearer about it than that. I think people will discover things that they never thought they would really enjoy. You know, I mean, just like, a, right. like, oh, I'm a rock guy. And then somebody calls a couple shuffles or somebody sits in and you get to play You're like, man, well, that was really fun. What was that? And uh, also, to your point, it sounds like when you are able to embrace these styles, you attract an ear from a level of professional like the people you were describing that sit in with the Monday night gig that you have. Um, what is it? Jim Caruso's cast party. Is that what it at Birdland That's every it. Monday? That's yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Jim and, is the host. Okay. And I encourage anybody who comes out to New York who's here on a Monday to come by. You might be like cabaret Broadway. I don't know about that. It's a really fun. Jim is the most hilarious host. <laughs> Yeah. And it is a super entertaining night, and the music is killing, and you will be blown away by the level of performer that that sits in. You know, that um, sounds cool, man. It's yeah. it is it is. Uh, I've had I have tons of friends and colleagues, and when people come to town, I you know I have them come down, and and I don't think there's been a single person that's ever walked away with a, a 
just like, yeah, it was okay. And it goes, it's like a long night. It goes for three hours and people are like, yeah, you know, I'm probably not going to make it all the way through at the right. end of the night. They're like, damn, that was so much fun. Yeah, that's so great. Man. It's, um, it, it sneaks up on you. But it sounds like but, the, um, the, the work that's come from that is, is, has a lot to do with the fact that you have somebody that is hearing this, uh, the care that you've taken to learn and understand these styles. And I think that people that are maybe steeped into a certain style of mu- music, maybe it's their, uh, you know, it's their field. They recognize that about you, and they're like, "Okay, this is this is the person I need to call. That is definitely going to take this gig seriously, whatever the gig is." You know, leading on to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, people think, "Oh, blues. Okay, I got my shuffle down. You know, my in the mm. singular." Mm-hmm. And it's. It's so much deeper than that. If you're going to go do a blues gig and you got one shuffle, you're probably not going to get invited back. You know, I wrote with Zorro, you know, we did a 152 page book about shuffles. And there's, I think, over 100 examples right. that I recorded on the on the CD. And it, it's it's a it's a pretty deep subject. And I the clinics I was just doing in Russia are I, I did my shuffles clinic because I show maybe 10 or 12 different examples of shuffles going from um, the 1940s up to the 1980s. And my message in, with regard to shuffles is that if, you know, the more you know, like I have people at the beginning of the clinic, I say, who, you know, who plays rock or who likes rock? Who plays jazz? Who plays funk? Who plays, um, you know, blues? Who plays country? Who plays... Uh, ska and reggae music. And I name all these styles of music and people put their hands up for whatever they like or whatever they play. And I then say, if you want to really play these styles well, you need to know about shuffles because shuffles is at the core of every one of those styles of drumming. Yeah. You might think, well, reggae, what does that have to do with shuffles? Well, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the first guy or to really popularize drum set playing guy named Lloyd Nibb, who was... In, in the early 60s, all those guys who created those styles and who were the first ones to put um, sort of Jamaican rhythms onto a drum set, what they were listening to at the time was American rhythm and blues um, coming out of, you know, Jamaica's 90 miles off the coast of the U.S. So if, you know, if you, if you understand that and you know how to shuffle, you can apply that to ska and reggae and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, it's just one example, but it's, uh, to me, you know, a lot, a lot of people sort of, I suppose, like, I don't, I, I try in discussing, I don't really like to use the word history because it has a bad connotation with a lot of people. But I like to say evolution or tradition, but in discussing those things, I'm not just sort of like, you know, learn this stuff because it's good for you and it's important. Like, I hate that. I don't want to be lectured to and told that, you know, I'm supposed to learn this because it's important. Yeah. I tell people, learn this because it will make you employable. Like, mm-hmm. that is my number one message to drummers. Right. Whatever employable means to you, whether you are a, um, you know, uh, uh, somebody who's making their living doing this, or whether you're somebody that's a weekend warrior, or you're somebody who just wants to be in a band, um, understanding the context behind the, the grooves and beats and fills and styles that you play will make you more employable. And 
I don't, you know, that's, that's the message. It also sounds like you, you've, you've also tried to explain to people, like, if you want to be a progressive player, if you want to continue honing your craft, you need to understand history. There's a quote from you, um, uh, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Yeah, and, and um, that's sort of the other side of the coin that I also talk about in clinics, why it's important, is because if, say, you're in an original band, mm-hmm. and, you know, if all you've listened to is what's happening currently or what's happening in the last, you know, five or ten years, then what you're going to bring to your original band is what everybody else is bringing to their original band, which isn't very original, right? It's the same you know, you're going to sound just like everybody else. And how are you going to distinguish yourself if you sound just like everybody else? Whereas if, say, you know something about press rolls or you know something about half-swung, half-straight feel or you know something about, um, you know, any number of kind of some of these uh, traditional or historical kind of approaches to playing, you can put some of those things in to what you're doing in your original band and, and really distinguish yourself from what everybody else is doing. So it offers you kind of a whole nother set of vocabulary or bag of tricks or whatever you want to call it, um, that, that you can apply to what you're doing. You know, why not do a Gene Krupa thing or a Bo Diddley thing in the middle of your heavy metal tune or right. put some press rolls in. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing what Steve Smith was really um, in heavy into his research when he was doing his kind of history and stuff. I saw him play with Vital Information, and right in the middle of one of the tunes, he like threw in this like 1920s press roll, and it was perfect for the tune in the middle of this kind of very modern fusion thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really cool, you know. And he doesn't need to do that. He's Steve Smith, but he's always searching for new and creative and inventive things to do or, you know, other ways to do it. So, um, I, I firmly believe that, and, and I am living proof, you know, that knowing about, about our evolution, our history and having these things at our disposal can definitely will make us more employable and just sort of leaving yourself open that, you know, when, cause I, you know, trust me, I, a lot of people might think, well, Daniel probably grew up listening to this music and, you know, he probably, you know, played in bands with this style of music when he was young. I didn't know anything about the style of music. My first band was a Black Sabbath cover band when I was in eighth grade and everybody else was in ninth grade. And I was like, I was, I still wish I was in a Black Sabbath cover band sometimes. I love that <laughs> stuff. And yeah. that's some of the, that was some of the funnest music I ever, you know, ever played um i play in a in a led zeppelin kind of a tribute thing that's a bunch of buddies from college and we get together we're going to get together later this month in july and i'm actually worried about it because the by the the guitar player in that band he's he's insane he's so freaking good and i'm like and the bass player does all these zeppelin videos on youtube and stuff oh wow so I'm like, you know, here I am. I'm the only guy out of those three that's actually a professional musician. And I'm like, man, I better get my act together, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but what what I'm saying is, like, I didn't inherently grow up listening to this kind of music. Um, 
I, 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 in the foreword to the to the, the the book I did with Zora, the Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming, I I talk about when I moved to LA in 1991. I like just about everybody else at the time wanted to like be Vinnie Colaiuta, be like the hot shot or Jeff Beccaro, like the hot shot studio guy, and you like, you know, that was my kind of my my dream and my fantasy, and I never in a million years thought I would get involved in historical style of music or in a swing band. I thought that was kind of dorky and let alone become the guy in the industry that's now known for like teaching people about that and obsessed with that. Like it wasn't on my radar screen at all. And all I'm saying is like the analogy I use is that Columbus set out to find a pathway to the, whatever it was, the East Indies or, you know, and instead he ran into America and that's what he became about. He never, Never, he, he he ended up somewhere different than where he thought he was going to be. Right. And so, you know, I, I say to people, leave yourself open because like, like you just said, Matt, that, that, um, you know, you may find yourself in going in a very different direction than you thought or might lead you in some cool new places that might end up being your place, you know, right. or the right. place that, that, that really resonates with you. Um, and I very quickly, you know, first I, I jumped in with Royal Crown Review because it was a gig and, you know, the band was doing well at the time. So steady work in L.A. and I was excited about it. But then I got my, you know, ass handed to me on a platter, basically, because I didn't know really stylistically what the band was doing. And then I got serious about figuring it out. And then I just totally got obsessed about it. And I started interviewing all these different guys that you know the the older guys that had created all the music that we were copying and being influenced by and then it just you know then i realized like there's a it was sort of twofold was like my interest was 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 i was becoming obsessed with with all this stuff because this is what i was doing as a drummer with royal crown review and i kind of um for me knowing these guys and meeting the Earl Palmers and the Hal Blaines and the Louis Delsons and uh, becoming friends and Buddy Harmon out in Nashville. And, um, you know, these, these pioneers of the instrument, nobody was telling their story and they were all getting older and they were starting to pass away. And so, you know, then it kind of became my mission and, um, but, you know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go play some Led Zeppelin music, too. So <laughs> right. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, it w- was was that kind of the impetus for wanting to dig into history? Was that the the gig with Royal Crown Review that kind of got you into that? Had you been interested in the evolution of our instrument before then? Well, I was into jazz mm-hmm. and bebop, you know, which when you go to music school, usually that's that's what people are into. Right. Um, it, was, it, was, it was challenging. Um, but I was into it not from the perspective of, like, the historical importance of it. Just I just got into that, into that music. But, yeah, absolutely. Getting involved with Royal Crown, it was partially an interest, but it was also... You know, guys, like I said, you know, they, they, it's interesting because a lot of those styles, those earlier styles of music, you might say jazz and jazz is such a vast word. What kind of jazz, what era of jazz, you know? So I had studied a lot of bebop and big band and I had a lot of, you know, what I thought was a lot of chops 
and I'm throwing all these big band licks in and they're going, that's not what this music is. Mm-hmm. And I, the more I began to listen to it, the more I realized that it was jazz or, you know, swing at a period where this was more of pop music. It was groove music and it wasn't about bebop independent stuff. It was about really finding a, a pocket and it was about being dance music. It had elements of big band stuff, but, but it was sort of, um, it was, it's, I like to say that a lot of music we played was bluesy, but it wasn't the blues. It felt like rock, but it wasn't rock. It was like jazz, but it wasn't jazz. It was something in the middle. Um, and in any case, I, I, you know, the guys were not happy with what I was doing and I wanted to keep the gig. So that was one thing, but then, meeting the the guys that actually created this music. And I've interviewed over 60 legendary drummers now, you know, many of whom, like I said, have passed away. I I really began to see that like, and this is another message I give to, to drummers today is that we actually have a lot more in common with this music than, than you might think. And I think people hear an old record and it sounds a little different and they hear a, uh, um, they they see an old clip and it looks different and the clothing's different, the gear's different and the sound is a little different and maybe the, the song form is a little different. So they think, well, this is something that has no connection to me. But what we were able to do in Royal Crown Review was, you know, um, I mean, we were all young guys. We'd all grown up listening to, you know, metal and punk rock and ska and rockabilly and, and all these other styles. So we we sort of brought the young man's aggressive approach to the idea of a swing band. And people would come see us and they'd go, oh, I get it. Like, I totally get it. This music is has all the kind of rebellion and, right. you know, fuck you that the styles that I like today have and all the energy. And when I go see this band, like I get punched in the gut in the same way I would as a rock show. And we did, you know every kind of concert under the sun. We opened for Kiss in 1996 at the Omaha Hockey Arena for two shows. And, you know, we toured with the B-52s and the Pretenders for a summer. And we worked with Bette Midler and we opened for James Brown. You know, I mean, we just, it was, it was, it was cool. So I guess as an educator, I, I learned a lot of lessons from that. And that's how I've kind of created my, my brand as an educator is to try to say, you know, let me help you. Let me try to show you some connections that you have today with this music and to show you that it's actually a lot closer to what you do today than you might think. And therefore there's a lot you can learn from it. You know, and there's a million different ways that I, that I endeavor to um, help people make those connections. A lot of times somebody who's an expert in a certain style or a certain era or calls himself a historian, and I'm really probably not officially, you know, I don't have a degree and I'm not in academic journals and things, but I mean, I've gone very, very deep into my particular area of interest. But what I find on the negative side is that a lot of people who do that tend to be, um, their attitude is, is they look down their nose at those who don't know as much as them. You know, and you could say the same thing about scenesters. Like anybody who's, if you get closer and closer to the heart of the scene, 
So, you know, the scene I was involved with, with Royal Crown, of course, in, in the 90s was the retro swing scene. There was that sort of dovetail with the rock, the retro rockabilly scene and the, the third wave ska scene and all that. But, you know, you can, you can turn a lot of people off to what, what you love by kind of putting them down because they don't know as much as you or you yeah. can be elitist about it. Yes. And one thing I've really, really tried hard to do with, with all the stuff that I have is to say rather like the way I try to describe this stuff is, is the way I would describe to you, like, you know, this amazing new movie that I just saw that I was so excited about. And I just had to share it with you and tell you all the stuff that was great about it or this new restaurant or this concert I just went to, you know what I mean? To, to take that kind of an approach and I'm just, just sharing it and inviting you to come check it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And in a way that's, it's helpful for me too, because it just keeps me really positive about things. You know, I mean, it, it, trust me, like, you know, the world that I inhabit, sometimes I feel a little bit marginalized because there aren't very many people that are doing this. And so it's my, kind of my own lane, which is cool. But at the same time, I get frustrated because, you know, there, I'm, I'm continually running up against this notion of like, well, I don't, what's the point of me getting into the history and evolution because it doesn't apply to me with what I do, right? Mm. So I'm kind of constantly, whereas something like, say, funk, you know, most drummers are like, yeah, I need to learn about funk because funk is, you know, something that's out there. I got to learn about that. So, but at the same time, it, you know, just by continuing to kind of take a very enthusiastic attitude and share with people about it, it helps to keep me positive and just keeps me not worrying about all that stuff and just kind of moving down the road, um, you know, doing my thing, you well, know, whatever that is. <laughs> Well, can I ask you in your travels, because I, I want to know more about your trip to Russia. It's really fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, but in your travels around the world, have you noticed attitudes different uh, amongst different uh, cultures or different uh, countries that you go to? Well, I, you know, I think that it's it's hard to know. I mean, the people that I end up, you know, meeting and and they're there for and, a reason you know, they i guess my events yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they they're in, they're interested enough that they show up i bought a ticket um, so i could come here and, and criticize you <laughs> yeah bought a ticket because i'm not interested but no but i mean but i i think people when they do come like it was really wonderful the experience i had in russia yeah um i, I, I did a clinic in st petersburg and a clinic in moscow both were pretty well attended um, and the audience was really knocked out by what I had to present and they were really wide open and they hung in there and they stayed right there with me and they loved it. And, um, that, you know, that's inspiring because I talk a lot, sort of what I like to talk about is what I call American popular music, yeah. which in general tends to become the world's popular music. In other words, you know, starting from the time, uh, really, of, you could say ragtime, most of the styles of music that become popular in this country end up becoming popular in other countries. And often they become the dominant form of pop music. So if you think about like K-pop, you know, it's very much like, a, you know, a, an American boy band, but they have a Korean, you know, flavor to it. Or you think about 
the influence of rock and roll or the influence of hip hop or, you know, all. So for whatever reason, American music tends to have a big influence worldwide. Um, and I, we, we could go much deeper into that because I really believe it's all about the feel. And the feel is what I refer to as the American pulse, which is kind of this thing that's evolved in our country of sort of African-American and European-American sort of, I would say like an African-American interpretation of European-American um, musical rules and constructs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's resulted from that is always this, that our music has a very unusual feel to it. And that feel is very danceable, but it's also very chill and has kind of a laid back characteristic. And I know that maybe sounds a little bit simplistic, but in what I teach my, my private students and, um, what I talk about philosophically speaking, I, I try to get to the heart of that, uh, idea because what is it about that beat, that American pulse that, that makes it so appealing, whether it's in the guise of 1920s early jazz or 1930s big band swing or 1940s bebop or 1950s early rock or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to today. It just keeps repeating. And in America, you know, we're a, we're a country that's very good at marketing itself. So, okay, right. there's that. But I do think there's something intrinsic in the music that that makes it popular the world over. And um, and, and like I said, I think it's this unique feel that the music has that comes out of the African-American and European-American kind of blend or sometimes um, uh, whatnot. Um, but in any case, when you go to other countries and you sort of frame things a little bit in this light, you know, because over there too, I mean, they, you know, I learned when I was in Russia that their very first jazz concert happened almost a hundred years ago, 1922 or 1923. So jazz was already, you know, the first recorded jazz in the United States, at least what they call jazz didn't happen until 1917. So, you know, only five years later, this music was already impacting people around the world. And when there was communism, you had rock and roll, you know, that people bought, you know, rock and roll records and smuggled them in. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and jazz as well. And there's a lot of great musicians there. I, I played with uh, great players in both St. Petersburg and Moscow who are very well steeped in, you know, these kind of American styles. So in any case, I guess it's really exciting to go to different spots around the world and, um, kind of bring my thing, you know, and then learn from them about their thing. Um, I was in Budapest, Hungary a couple of years ago, uh, doing a, actually a Buddy Rich tribute show. Um, that was pretty incredible. Um, and uh, I spent a lot of time in Australia doing clinics and various things and, and in Europe. And uh, um, my private students now are from all over the world. I have a guy who's in Mumbai, India, I have Chinese students. I have um, South Americans. Uh, last year I was in South America as well, although I didn't do any clinics, but I did a bunch of gigs. You know, I don't know, man. I, it's it's hard, I guess, to make generalizations, but sure. uh, it's it's really wonderful to to kind of bring my gospel of how I do it in out into the world. And generally, I, I get a really great response from people. So. 
This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. You've always been a household name within the drumming community, but there's so many different things that you've 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 got your hands into. And one of the things is the Daniel Glass show. I know you had the Daniel Glass podcast um, through our mutual friend uh, Nick Ruffini. Also, want to uh, shout out to J.C. Clifford for connecting us and just making that connection. We we hung out a little bit in Nashville a while ago and. And, um, cool. just, just, I'm like, we were talking about you and I was like, you know, I've been wanting him on the show for quite some time. So thanks to JC for making that formal yeah. connection. Um, but one of the things when you first started the podcast, uh, a few years ago, you had an episode about rock around the clock that uh-huh. j- just was so fascinating. I don't know if you remember, I reached out to you right after that. And I was like, dude, this was amazing. And I think to try and get people engaged to the different projects you're doing, I'd like to kind of just briefly touch upon some of those things and maybe cite some examples of of the things that you're doing. So starting with the podcast, that episode, can you give us like a brief overview, obviously without revealing too much to try and get our listeners to go there and listen to this (laughs) episode, but... It's, um, it, you know, uh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I started doing a podcast and, and again, Nick Ruffini was kind of the inspiration behind that. He's like, man, you should do a podcast. Uh, this is a few years ago now. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've been very into, in addition to doing the work, you know, writing the books, the DVDs, and I'm, and I teach a lot on Skype, which is something I'd love to talk about too, but maybe mm-hmm. people don't know that. Um, and of course as a gigging musician, but, um, you know, I would have conversations with people and they would mention something and I would just start talking about it. And 20 minutes later, you know, they were like, wow, that's really interesting. And yeah. I, as opposed to so much of the other kinds of social media or way of reaching people, it's hard to have more of a long form kind of a platform. Everybody, you know, you get whatever it is, 280 characters or um, a meme or a soundbite or this or that. So I um, jumped into the podcast thing. I started it on my own first, but then I realized it was just going to be too much work with the editing and and all that. So I um, put it under Nick Ruffini's uh, drummer's resource uh, podcast as the Daniel Glass Show. So every two or three weeks, I come out with a new episode of the Daniel Glass Show. Which, if you're on the Drummer's Resource, you know, feed, yeah. um, then you automatically get the shows. But it, one of the first ones that I did was one of the things I wanted to do was to to take a particular album or drummer or song or um, you know just one item, a historical item, and really blow it up and take a very deep dive into it. And so rock around the clock was the first thing I did with that. And people think, Oh, rock around the clock. That's cute. You know, the theme from happy days and what Mm -hmm. a cute little song it is from the fifties, not realizing just how powerful and 
you know, important that song is how, if you go back and really listen to it, like what an incredible production it is and all the things that went into it and how it is a reflection of what rock and roll meant at that time when rock first came out. And I ended up um, putting an outline together and then I just spat it all out. That's usually how I do my podcast. They're very <laughs> kind of extemporaneous, but I throw a lot of information in. And um, it was an hour and 17 minute long podcast, you know, and Nick was like, that might be a little long, Daniel, but um, I've gotten really great feedback on it. And it just talks about from every possible angle, um, what's important about that song and what's going on with the drums and why people, historians consider it to be such an important song and how you should listen to it and what came out of it and, you know, what it set the stage for. And those are the kind of things that I, I love to, I really love to talk about. And if people, people can either go to the drummer's resource uh, page, um, but if you just want to see my episodes, I have a page on my website, which is danielglass.com forward slash podcasts, basically. Yeah. And if you go there, you can see all of the, all of my episodes and you can link to them. Um, so, you know, in case people are interested, but, but my, my, my version of the podcast, I don't, most podcasts, drummer podcasts are interview based. Yeah. I don't do that much of interviewing. I do a lot more talking about various topics, either related to technique or philosophy or motivation. And then I have various historical podcasts. So I did a two-parter on John Bonham. Um, I, I, uh, I did one, I think a two-parter on Gene Krupa and the Benny Goodman concert at Carnegie Hall, which um, is, again, like a seminal, important record that actually you can hear Gene Krupa in his, you know, you, it's like the greatest Krupa record ever because you can, you know, they, they recorded it in Carnegie Hall with one microphone, and the sound in Carnegie Hall is so good that uh, the record actually has better fidelity than most of the studio recordings of that time. Um, so, you know, but I've also done, you know, I did a, a tribute to Ian Pace, who was my first drum hero, and I sort of do a bit of a retrospective of his career because people aren't aware of all the amazing stuff he's done. Um, so I freely jump around. It's not just stuff about, you know, the 40s or the 50s or the 30s or whatever. I, yeah. I consider everything fair game or whatever I happen to be interested in or have some knowledge about. I mean, I should probably actually do a podcast about drum contests because, um, you know, we know, of course, about the Guitar Center contest, but yeah. there's been, there's a whole history of them. And uh, Karma and Apathy r ran a drum contest for, for a bunch of years in the 70s. And, of course, the Gene Krupa contest, which is kind of an epic thing and people don't know that much about it. And a lot of very famous drummers either won or were finalists in that contest. Um, in addition to Louis Belson and, you know, just, just these weird little things that I find fascinating. And I think uh, hopefully, you know, other people do as well. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing, I, I, I'm into this stuff because not because it's, you know, I just, I just find it fascinating. And, and I, 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 I don't know, for me, part of what I love about the idea of, connecting myself to the past is that somehow it's comforting to me in some way. I think it sort of gets maybe a little out there, but I think, um, I think a lot of, 
drummers, if you're a young drummer and you grow up, to especially today, and you're just surrounded by insane chops everywhere, and it just like sort of makes you feel hopeless. Like, how can I ever, you know, achieve anything? Or, I mean, I feel that way, and I'm, you know, I've achieved a lot. <laughs> I watch some of this stuff on YouTube, and I'm just like, holy crap, you know. But I think if we could see ourselves as coming out of something much larger and something that spans a longer period of time, it's sort of comforting to know, like I'm part of this great tradition. And, um, I've, you know, in, for me meeting the guys who created the music that I love and then sharing that with, you know, other musicians and younger musicians today, um, you know, it's, it's a passing of a torch or it's a, um, you know, we're all just part of this thing and we're, we're, you know, knowledge is being shared. And, um, I, I, for me, I find that very comforting as I go through my life as a drummer. It makes me feel connected to, you know, the industry connected to people and it, and it helps give me my own sense of purpose, you know, which is important because I think a lot of times we sort of, we're trying to do all this stuff and, you know, we don't feel like we're, have a sense of purpose or we're not making an impact or, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, just kind of a side note, but, uh, no, I um, think it's really important for people to to understand, especially because there's so much online that it's easy to get distracted. There's so much that we see on, especially on YouTube that, I mean, it's like, oh man, I'd like to learn to do that. And then somebody breaks it down and then you're trying to play it, or maybe they're just playing it and you're trying to dissect that. And then we get distracted with life and gigs and other things that we have to do. And we, and we never are really moving forward. And uh, to kind of dovetail into the teaching that you're doing, one of the descriptives yeah. that you use in your style of teaching is just kind of getting into the micro aspects of drumming as a way to, you know, just breaking things down in the smallest ways to then make progress. It's a, it's a very interesting subject. And to me, uh, what I consider what I teach as a teacher are the kind of intangibles uh, that, that are, are difficult things to, to, to actually teach people. In other words, um, you know, we throw around these terms, pocket, groove, swing, great feel. Um, we understand these things. We know when we hear them or see them, we, we, uh, instinctively connect, say when we hear like a super great, you know, groove drummer, like Steve Gadd or Steve Jordan, or, you know, one of these guys. Um, I mean, certainly we connect to the high flying acrobatics cause that's impressive, but I think uh, too much, you know, it's sort of like we learn something basic. You know, we all go into that first drum lesson, let's say when we began, do that, do, do that with eighth notes on the hi-hat. And it's relatively easy to learn. So people learn and they think, okay, I got that. So now let me add more combinations, more variations. Let me work on fills. Let me try to play it fast. And we end up spending our time trying to like fill up the space rather than taking a minute to actually look at what it was that we were doing when we learned the basic thing. We mm-hmm. rush right through the basics. And you could say this is the case in jazz, you know, or in rock. It really doesn't really doesn't matter. And 
unfortunately, the value placed on education is about that, that the more busy you are, the more you can, um, you know, learn fills and licks and things, then that is a sign of success or progress. And that's how a lot of online drumming teaching works or how, you know, online videos work. It's like, Start simple now, but the goal really is to get to this place where you're playing, you know, 30-second right. notes on every limb. And so, you know, I, I studied with Freddie Gruber. I was very fortunate yeah. and jumped on, you know, when I got out of music school, his his name was being floated around L.A. as a teacher to go to. And I, I had suffered a lot of injuries when I was in music school because I had terrible technique and um, I was eager to continue learning. And my studies with Freddie, I spent about about five or six years with him. And I joined Royal Crown during that time. So as as we went, it kind of tapered off a little. But this idea of what I now call deliberate practice, which is something that I talk about a lot. In fact, my very first podcast, which people can find again if they go to that page, is about deliberate practice. And the idea is this, that if we want to be very effective in how we learn, then the idea is to break things down to their most, most fundamental components and begin there. And often what I teach has very little to do with drumming. It doesn't look like drumming. It doesn't feel like drumming. It's moving. And in doing that, we begin to look at, you know, there are three principal grips, French, German, and traditional we begin to look at those, we begin to look at form. We begin to look at all aspects of body positioning and how we are in space. We begin, we, we slow things down so there's a lot of space. We move at very slow tempos. We learn how to relax. And what, what you're in essence doing is sort of reprogramming the body to think about making rhythm in a much more natural way, in a completely ergonomic, economic way. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't really need to do that. I'm, I'm a pretty good drummer. Um, but most of the students that come to me are frustrated because they don't, they get stuck, right? I had a student who's done all kinds of online courses with, you know, this one and that one. And, uh, I mean, you know, he can't get his left hand moving. So he, that's why he came to me. I have other students that have some pain. Um, interestingly, one of the people I teach and the reason that I got all, a lot of the stuff connected in Russia, I teach one of the biggest, uh, the drummer with one of the biggest bands in Russia right now. They, play, they literally play stadiums. They're not that well known here in the U.S., but in Europe and in Russia, they play, you know, to enormous crowds. Wow. And he's not a jazz guy. He's a rock guy. And when he first took a lesson with me, he was here in New York. And a, a buddy, a mutual friend who's another Russian guy here who's also a student of mine, brought him and said, you got to take a lesson with Daniel. And he was very skeptical. And he was skeptical the whole way. But now, you know, he's a, he's just super ecstatic about this. And to hmm. me, you know, th- these are the kinds of things that we could get into much more deeper, again, philosophical conversations about this. But the, these are the, these, this sort of slowing down, stripping away, doing less, and beginning to allow things to happen instead of forcing things to happen, right? Like, as drummers, we tend to look at, you know, the way a drummer moves, it looks like we're, you know, gripping the stick very hard and hitting very hard and making these big motions and using tons of force, right? And and in drum education, the words force and strength and, you know, 
building muscle, all of these things are, are words that we hear really commonly. But in actuality, the best drummers in the world move very economically and they're very relaxed. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what style it is. That's how you become the best, you know, one of the best, you rise to the top of the heap, as it were, is because you're moving with efficiency and clarity and consistency. And, you know, one of my big phrases I use in, with my students is consistency plus clarity equals articulation. Wow. And when you, when you listen to a drummer like Steve Gadd, you know, Steve Gadd will play that exact same beat that we all learned at our first drum lesson, but yet yeah. why is he getting hired by Paul Simon and James Taylor and Shaka Khan and Chick Corea? And we're not, what is the difference, you know? And so you could say it's the same thing, like a Ferrari and, you know, a Ford, you know, the 1990 Ford Fiesta and a 2019 Ferrari, they both do the same job. They take us down the road, get us from A to B. They both have the same parts. So why is one valued at, you know, half a million dollars and the other valued at 3,500 bucks? <laughs> and, you know, the, the difference is in the, the details and the, the awareness and the clarity with what goes into that. So, it's a, it's a, it's a long, you know, the, the students that I work with, we, it's, it's a really amazing experience. And it's sort of like, I went through something similar with Frey, but with my historical studies, I'm also throwing in context and I'm also doing motivation with the students and helping them define their career goals and trying to make them more employable. And what you, you know, at first it might seem frustrating. I'm just doing these little movements. How, how is this going to make me better? a better drummer. How am I going to get better gigs? I came to you, Daniel, to get better gigs. But the, the idea is that if, if we can begin to speak with greater articulation, with a clearer voice, even doing very simple things, first of all, it's kind of going to raise the bar as far as what we expect of ourselves. And it's going to be like, no, I'm not really learning something until I learn it at this level. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you know, it's, it has a myriad effect. So what's great about what I teach is I don't teach styles. I don't teach fills. I don't teach limb independence. Uh, I mean, once you get down the road, we talk about it, but all of that stuff you can find in a free YouTube video and it isn't necessarily going to help you to get to where you're going. What I teach is extremely fundamental ways of moving. And you could say that you know, another analogy I like to use is the, the, the triangle offense. And I read a really wonderful article about the triangle offense. And for those who don't know, the triangle offense was um, a guy named Tex Winter in the 1960s, who was a college basketball coach, wrote this book about a very fundamentals-based strategy called the triangle offense. And everybody thought he was nuts, and he was kind of a second-tier college coach for many years, until a guy named Phil Jackson took over coaching the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. Now, the Bulls were a very good team. They had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, all those guys. But they always got booted after the first round of the playoffs. So they bring in Phil Jackson. And Phil Jackson hires Tex Winter as his one of his assistant coaches and begins to implement this triangle offense. And what does he do? He has the guys in the band, in the, in the band in the, <laughs> on the team yeah. doing, like, very basic fundamentals. And here you have, like, Michael Jordan and these guys, and they're going – Dude, we did this when we were five years old. Like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And they, but they went through it and they went through it and they went through it. And then lo and behold, they became the, the legendary Chicago Bulls. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he goes to LA and does the same thing. I was living in LA at the time. And I remember the Lakers were losing in the first round of the playoffs at Shaq and Kobe. But what was, why couldn't they put it over the top? So, you know, these are the kind of examples or analogies that I try to use with what happens when, when what I do with, with my students. And it, what's great about it is that because it is fundamentally based, it doesn't really matter who the student is. I work with complete beginners. I work with um, people that have been playing for 30, 40 years, young. I have teenage students. I have, you know, students in their 60s. Um, the idea is we're re-examining. And once you can begin to clarify your grips, clarify how you're moving from surface to surface, clarify that your job is not to slam downward, but actually to to set up the drumstick and then allow physics gravity, a perfect force, limbs, which are actually heavy, allow dropping to happen, yeah. letting things fall, allowing things to drop. That's where the magic starts to happen. That's where the pocket starts to show up because we're not, you know, we're not trying to control everything. We're allowing things to happen. So that's a very sort of brief, um, I guess you could say synopsis of what happens when I teach. But what's amazing is that if you get some of this stuff under your belt, all of a sudden it doesn't matter what you play. All of a sudden it starts to speak clearly. And I have this one exercise I do, and this will be my last point, I promise. But (laughs) one exercise called that I call the throw up exercise. And if you remember earlier in the interview, I was talking about something called the American pulse which has this sort of contradictory feeling to it, meaning that it has forward momentum. It makes us, it compels us to move or to walk or to dance. But at the same time, it's cool and it's laid back. And that's really how I define the influence of American music, is that the European aspect is the forward momentum, but we're not just marching. We're, it has a groove, it has a pocket, it has that, that thing, and that's the African-American interpretation of that march beat or whatever Mm -hmm. and and so this exercise i teach which is called the throw up exercise which is a silly name but it gets people's attention the idea is that we throw the stick and at the same time as soon as we do we allow it to come up and it it and to create a, a beautiful flow of notes whether those are quarter notes which would be your jazz ride pattern at the heart of that or eighth notes which would be your hi hat work if you're playing rock and roll music it it doesn't matter what style it is because this this american pulse has flown you know flowed through generation after generation of musicians all evolving one from the next so you know the the idea is once we can begin to understand how this pulse moves and how some of these things work within the music then all of a sudden what we have already been doing is suddenly clearer and more articulate suddenly has more depth to it has more pocket to it so you know and and i've had students many of my students after one lesson come back and talk about this throw-up exercise and you know they practice just that on a pad quarter notes along with music really thinking about these elements of throwing up and they say my band at practice said what the hell happened to you you sound like 50 times better and i'm not even doing anything except this exercise so that's the idea. It's not, we don't have to relearn everything by retooling our brain along with our body in these ways that seem very outside the box. 
we can completely change what we're, you know, what we do behind the drum set, what we've always been doing. And it can happen without us even realizing it. It's a very organic change. It's not like you try to take these exercises and use them at, you know, in what you're doing, practice and play the way you play. But the more you practice this material that I give you, all of a sudden things just start happening, you know, without you having to consciously make that change. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how this relates to the working drummer, and I had some notes prepared. And, and you're you're yeah. essentially covering a lot of this, because when you talk about clarity in your groove, and you talk about these kinds of things, and it, you're talking about something and how it relates to making music with other musicians, and the importance that a drummer plays in that role. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about work. We're talking about getting, yes. getting work, getting gigs, and the value that you have that then then you have to the people that will call you and call you again. Exactly. You know, the singer, the guitar exactly. player. <laughs> yeah, because why? Because you not only made the band dance, you know, and by dance I don't just mean dance. I mean yeah. you made the band, you know. What I like to say is, what is our job as a drummer? It's to make people dance. And what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, take a group of people and move them from point A to point B with your rhythm making. And an extension of that is not only to make your band happy and ecstatic and feel good and feel right about the music they're playing, but also to make your audience feel right enough so that they pull their wallets out and take money out and give it to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And I often tell students, it is, you know, it is so hard. You know, we all know, we don't just give our money to the first person that walks up to us. We're very selective about what we spend our money on. But the stuff that we love, the stuff that, you know, that really connects with us, we're more than happy to open up the pocketbook. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is really an extension of all of this that I'm talking about is that, there is an incredibly concrete goal with what I teach as, as a private teacher, which is, you know, sharing the historical context of all these exercises. Why does the hi-hat drop on two and four when you're playing jazz? How do you connect it with the ride cymbal? What is the point of that? There is a point because there's a reason why guys play it the way they do or drummers do and have for generations. And if you don't understand that, then it's going to be like, pin the tail on the donkey, which again is how most people learn jazz. They just hope that they get two and four to kind of fall in the right spot against a jazz ride pattern that they don't even know why they're doing that or that that's really based in four quarter notes, that that they're, um, you know, uh, they just sort of learn a variant on ding, ding, the ding, chick, the ding, chick, the ding. Okay, I'm a jazz drummer. No, you're not. You can play some stuff. Yeah. You've learned some independent skills yeah. that doesn't have anything to do with jazz. And I, you know, I should mention, I run a four day jazz intensive in yep. New York with JC Clifford. He's my partner on that every year here. And these again are the kind of things we get into. It's like, what is your real goal as a jazz drummer? What should you be doing? And we go through four days and every day I present, we start in New Orleans and I present, you know, the evolution, not only of the style of drumming in jazz, but how that, went along with the drum set and why was the hi-hat added and why was the ride symbol added and what should we be doing, you know, when we get there. And the idea is that the students walk out of that experience 
having a much clearer idea about what their role is as a jazz drummer. But it's the same thing I did with the guy in Russia. He doesn't, he's not interested in jazz. He doesn't play music that swings. He doesn't play shuffles. But the idea was to get him in touch with what he needs to be doing as a drummer. In his, he's in one of the biggest bands in Russia, and yet he's on a quest you know, to, to be able to do his gig better, more pain-free, and you know, all these kind of things. So it's, it's some kind of big picture thinking in a way. And my goal is 1000% to make my students employable. Like I really could care less about chops and licks and fills. I obviously they're important and we need to have them, but they mean relatively little. If you think about rock and roll 90 or pop music. And today that means country music and hip hop music and, you know, uh, 99% of it is one and three on the bass drum and two and four on the snare. Yeah. And whether you have a swung subdivision and whatever else you pile on top of that, if that isn't there, it isn't there from the first beat of the first bar to the last beat of the last bar, you know, you are not doing your job and you are not going to be employable. So interestingly, when you said that it's, you can only get this from a one in one teacher, I've been spending probably two years now developing a, a series of an online series of online courses that I'm, I'm still a ways away from getting them out, but this is exactly what they're going to be talking about. We're going to get deep, deep into the nuts and bolts of these various subjects. And I'm excited about it. I'm a little freaked out about it because there's so much great online education out there already competing, you know, for people's dollars. But I really think that there are not enough, if any, people having this particular conversation, which to me is Mm -hmm. as fundamental as it gets with as far as what what are we doing here when we sit down behind a drum set? What are we actually doing? What is our job? What is our purpose? Um, And, you know, we, we cannot sort of take this too lightly. And I think the problem is drummers goals are more about just piling on stuff rather than answering these very fundamental questions. And to me, the answer to those questions is employability. If you can answer them right. And that's what working drummers want. You know, that's, that's what we want. Of course, there's a lot more involved, which I'm sure your podcast talks about, about being a sideman and, you know, dealing with other musicians and showing up on time. And of course, all those things. Yeah. But yeah. at the core of it, I mean, what you want, and I swear to God, I tell this to people too. When, you know, I worked over 200 gigs last year in New York and for the last two or three years now. And the comments that I get when I play with people is not, dude, your chops are sick because I'm in New York city and there are people who can chop me into pieces with their chops (laughs) because I don't, you know, I have a great, a good number of chops, but honestly, that's not what I work on when I work on my, myself as a drummer. The comments that I get are, dude, that felt so good. Yeah. I love playing with you because it feels so good. That's the comment I get over and over and over again, whether you know, we're, I mean, I'm playing straight eighth gigs. I play swung, swung eighth gigs. Um, you know, even though I'm known primarily as a jazz or swing guy or whatever, but that's the comment I'm looking for because right. that means you're going to be at the top of my list when I need 
a drummer next time around. Exactly. That's what people are looking for. <laughs> they yeah. want it to feel great, and they want their, it to feel great for their audience. And they, you know, I mean, how many times, and this again is my last comment, but how many times do we have that experience where we, where we, you know, I mean, I just, I use Steve Gadd all the time, but anytime Steve Gadd comes on, it's like if I'm just hanging out with somebody or whatever, I'm just like, uh, excuse me, hold, hold on, just, just hold that thought. Yeah. And I just, boom, put my focus on what he's doing. Yeah. He's a soft-spoken guy. He doesn't say much. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He's not outrageous. His playing screams volumes, and it grabs us by the scruff of our shirt and does not let go. And that's what our drumming has to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. all the rest of it is secondary. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm as passionate about this and I've, you know, I've, I've been teaching on Skype now for probably 10 years and I've really working hard to figure out a way and I've pretty much come upon it where the support that I'm going to offer in these courses, you're going to feel like you're at a private lesson with me and you're going to get an incredible amount of very thorough feedback in a variety of different situations or different, different settings or circumstances. Um, when you, when you jump in with these courses. So I'm still putting it all together. It's a pretty complicated beast, but I'm very, I'm excited about it and I'm crossing my fingers that people will dig it. So I wanted to ask you just briefly about the hi-hat. Because I know we know the stories about you know the the low boy, a sock symbol, the different things, and how. So the name hi hat, you know, you're thinking low boy, hi hat. But I was told once, right. and, and see if you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that hi hat referred was like almost like slang for people with money. And of course, we're talking early 20th century yes. uh, people, and there was a lot of disparity between income. Uh, and you people that wore top hats were they, they referred to him as oh, that that guy's a high hat, um, and so yes. if you could afford this new piece of gear, it was referred to as the high hat. Is that is that close or? Well, I don't know. I I'm, I would agree with you that I have heard that that particular definition of where the, the term came from that something mm-hmm. was high hat meant that it was. Um, um, high brow or uh, top top drawer. I'm not sure if it necessarily <laughs> meant that it necessarily had a negative connotation to it. Gotcha. Um, and I don't know if then to extrapolate from that and say, well, it meant that the high hat was an expensive piece of gear. I think. I think. And again, I'm speculating because the the stories swirling around names of particularly high hat is there's lots of different. Mm-hmm. Um, stories, and I've never really heard a, a definitive one. I've heard lots of, of, okay. of okay. answers, which which theoretically could all make sense. Um, but I think certainly the idea that um, it it you know, but you know, I don't necessarily know if the low boy was called a low boy first, and then the you know the term high hat oh, was right. representative of like, oh, this is the next step. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's just, it could be just a play on words, you know, like, oh, there, there was a term called high hat that was out there. Somebody and just threw it on there. so this kind of fit nicely. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what they referred to all of these symbols, like, it, you know, and a good way to learn about these things is to go look at the old catalogs. 
so in the Century Project, my DVD, which is about the history and evolution of the drum set, when I get to this particular area, I show a page from like the 19, I think it's 33, sometime in the early 30s, um, Ludwig catalog. And what they called these was foot sock symbols. And foot sock is a derivation of hand sock, which came before foot sock. Um, and by sock, I again, that's a question people have asked, but I think like sock, like hit to hit it, you know, like sock someone in the eye or oh, whatever, wow, okay. but to the, they had, they had, you know, a, the sort of, there was a, a choke and release technique that was very popular in the 1920s where you would have a suspended symbol, uh, usually a small symbol, like maybe 10 or 12 inches. And you would, you know, and you would sort of, before you had a hi-hat or a ride symbol, you would play this choke symbol as an alternative to playing press rolls on your snare drum uh, or on a, on a woodblock or cowbell. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that was very cumbersome because it required two hands to play, one to hold the stick and one to hold the symbol. And you had to figure out what to do with the stick that was on the hand that was holding the symbol. You couldn't put the stick down. So, it, you know, there, there was a whole system that developed and a way to play the choke symbol, which is very sophisticated. And then around the same time, which is in the, the late 1920s, um, the very tail end of the 20s, they developed what were called hand sock symbols. So now you've got a little device. Um, they had the type called a bock-a-bock. Billy Gladstone, the famous educator and drummer and drum builder at Radio City Music Hall, um, he created something called the Gladstone hand sock symbols, which is like, it looked like a scissors type of a handle. And they had two small symbols. Yeah. And so you could, you didn't have to reach for your, your, your splash symbol now to do the choke and release. You could just pick up your hand sock. You still have to hold, you still have to use two hands. So out of this, then around the same time, they began to say, well, why don't we take a hand sock, but use it with the foot or, you know, what would become the hi-hat foot because that foot wasn't doing anything at that point. You only had the bass drum pedal. So that little ingenious device was an imitation of the bass drum pedal, except with two symbols. And then in a very short period of time, they raised it up and we have, you know, the beginnings of, of what we now call the hi-hat. But there's so many interesting things about all that. This 1932 or 1933 Ludwig catalog literally shows all three on one page. Hmm. So the first, they had what was called a snowshoe symbol, which literally looked like it was a very primitive kind of a hi-hat where you literally, lit, you had a leather strap around the foot. And it was just, you know, like two two pieces of wood that had a bit of a spring. And you would lift the foot up with the one symbol on it and then just let it clop down on the other. So it wasn't a spring type of device that uh, it just had a hinge on it, I should say. Gotcha. It wasn't a spring-operated device like a, a, a bass drum pedal. But then the low boy was looked very similar to the bass drum pedal, and then you had the hi-hat. And the first hi-hats, by the way, if you listen to some of the first recordings on hi-hat, it wasn't always necessarily seen as a timekeeper. It was also used as more of a sound effect device, which is what the choke and release and all the hand socks were used. Gotcha. They were They were not... You know, they were they were used as sound effects as well as timekeepers. But already by like 31, you know, 32, the hi-hat is quickly taking over as the obvious solution to this problem. And by 35, it's it's in, you know, and the others are well gone. So hand socks and low boys were literally around as a thing, say, between, you know, 
27, 28, and 33 or 34, and that's it. Um, but during that time period, you know, everybody was, was using them and, and experimenting with them and using them in different ways. So anyway, hi-hat, low boy, foot sock, hand sock, you know. And what's really interesting is when I first moved to L.A. in 1991, I would play with older guys, and they would say, go to the sock symbol on that section of the song. Right, right. Meaning they wanted you to play the hi-hat. So the sock symbol still remained or trap amongst set. People the would older use the guard. They'd say trap yeah. set, you know. Trap set is people. another yeah. another term that sort of survived from the old days because yeah. we were lit- originally we were called trap drummers. Right. And a, a lot of what we played were traps, which is sort for contraptions. So anyway, I mean it's just very interesting and the other thing that that I would say about all that is that we think that things happen overnight. You know, oh, the first recording with a hi hat was 1930. Uh, you know, Fletcher Henderson Sugar uh, with Walter Johnson playing uh, playing a hi hat. So now we think just as of that moment, you know, everybody was playing the hi hat. But it, you know, these things, as we know, they take time and it's a gradual transition. And some transitions happen faster than others, but. Things, something like double drumming, which I talk about in yeah. the uh, Century Project, started, was going already by the 1860s, and people were still using elements of it in the 1920s and 30s. And you could still see Buddy Rich, you know, in the 70s, reach down and hit the bass drum as part of a fill. That's true. Which I wouldn't call double drumming anymore, no, but, but still. in the sense yeah. that I, you know, but they, these things, you know, they have a, a long life. And, and that's another thing that I'm just always trying to to uh, share with people are these really interesting aspects of, of old school drumming and still pretty cool. You can still, you know, use some of those things today. No, I think it's really fascinating that sometimes we do things because we learned about it from a teacher or a book or a video, you know, like uh, playing some sort of second line thing or, you know, we're hitting the splash cymbal on beat four, but then to go back and find out, well, to play on beat one at this particular time, this juncture of American history of popular music, it was rude to play on the downbeat, you know, so crash cymbals or hitting, emphasizing the one wasn't as important until what, around the 1940s? Is that what you were saying? Well, I mean, one has always been an important beat. I actually did a whole podcast about beat one. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, if, we, if we're thinking about like playing a fill and then crashing on beat one at the end right. of that, that didn't start till the late 50s. And okay. I you wow. know, talk about Earl Palmer was one of the first guys to, to do what we call crashing a crash symbol yeah. in the way that we use a crash symbol today. So yeah. that wasn't happening until the mid and late 50s. So yeah, if you want to play older styles of music, and you're whacking a big old crash symbol on one, you ain't going to be employable. <laughs> you know, it's like, or you might be to a point, but, yeah, you know, there are people that, that understand that. Another great example is if you listen to Johnny B. Good, um, and I was just talking with a guitar player about this on a gig I did a couple of days ago, who came up to me and said, your feel is so great, and like, you're so, you know, you understand what shuffle to use and which circumstance, and, you know, that, that kind of comment that I love to get. And he... You know, we both laughed because go listen to Johnny Be Good, Chuck Berry. We all know it. You know, when, in my day, that was one of these songs when you were young and you would like play with a band. You know, you'd play Johnny Be Good. Everybody plays it as a straight eighth tune. And if you listen to Chuck Berry's guitar, yeah. he's playing it with straight eighths. Yeah. But if you go back and listen to Fred Bilo, the drummer, who was a 
jazz guy who was a session guy at Chess Records, which is where Chuck Berry cut all his important stuff. He didn't give a rat's ass about what this young upstart was doing with straight eights. He's playing a swing beat. Full on, do, 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 behind Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry's going, gut, 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 gut. And the only thing that holds it all together is the piano player, a guy named Johnny Johnson, who thankfully was working with Chuck and sort of managed to, like, you know, cross that half swing, half straight line. But when you listen to to Chuck, to that song, it works. It shouldn't work. It's like, it's like my whole thing on, uh, Rock Around the Clock. It's like on paper, Rock Around the Clock is this horrible Frankenstein monster that just is made up of, you know, you've got a, a, a pedal steel guitar from country, you have a honking R&B sax player, you've got Bill Haley's playing an acoustic guitar and singing like a, a hillbilly, you've got a jazz guitarist playing the solo, and then the drummer is a 1930s-style Gene Krupa guy who doesn't play any backbeats. What drives that song is the bass player who's playing like a blues rockabilly slap style. Yeah. So all the things I just said together are going on in that one song, and you think, like, this is a disaster, and none of it is what we would consider to be rock and roll today. Yet the way it all meshed, and it was recorded, by the way, at a studio one block away from my house here in New York City, That and in that studio, it's now converted to condos. Carmen Apathy lives in that freaking apartment, and... Ah, there's so many great stories. Yeah, that reminds me because I had a chance to talk to Carmine earlier this this uh, this year, and he uh, we talked yeah. about you and how you ran into him, and he's oh, like, wow. "Oh yeah," he goes, that, "Yeah," he, he said, "Yeah, that's right," because there was a picture, and he goes, "Yeah," he was interested in this apartment because this is where Rock Around the Clock was recorded. We talked briefly about <laughs> yes. that. It was crazy. Well, man, in, in, and I was so yeah. So anyway, but yeah, so you know, just. Um, that's, this is where the history stuff is so cool, and it comes. It is. And I just think it's so fascinating, you know. It is amazing, and I mean, y- you say you know the drum set is well equipped to tell the story of America and the evolution of American popular music, but really. I mean, I think a lot of us are fascinated with history in general. I mean, there's a reason why there's a whole channel dedicated to history. But, you know, I mean, when you look at the evolution of the drum set, I mean, you're tapping into the evolution, uh, into technology, uh, how immigration affected the evolution of the drum set in America, Uh, the end of the Civil War, the influence of the African-American community into what we do. And so it's it's really it's really great stuff, man. It's just it was again, like I said before, it was just so fun to dig into this um, to this stuff. And I mean, you do such a great job uh, in presenting this and making it really and and your excitement and comes across. Your interest comes across for sure, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. Well, yeah. Thank you, Matt. I mean, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, having a chance to talk to you, and I appreciate that you've done your homework and asked, at least from my opinion, some really uh, yeah. insightful, intelligent questions that that allowed me to kind of, uh, you know, speak to 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 a lot of stuff. And thank you for for doing what you do. There's a lot of us doing podcasts these days, but I think, yeah. you know, I your the title of yours really says it says it straight up. And um, well, you know, I think there's yeah. so many people out there who want to be able to make a living doing this, and you know, 
okay, there it is right there. <laughs> Here's <laughs> you know, some reality. Well, there's, yeah. there's so much, uh, and this is good. This is the good news. There's so much we weren't able to cover that you've done, but it's, it's, this is just kind of a taste and introduction to the information that I know that we, I mean, again, you're such a household name for so much of the drumming community, but for anyone that hasn't really dug in quite yet, of course, we'll have links in the show notes and on the website, and uh, we're going to turn this thing around real quick, but and 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 get it out there. Uh, so it's again, I just hope that uh, it this whets people's appetite to to dig deeper. There's so much, and it's so fun. But uh, but Daniel, I, I really appreciate it, man. It's been it's been fun to talk to you. I hope we get a chance to meet in person at some point. We have so many mutual friends. It would be it would be nice to meet in person. You know. Indeed, and I I relish and look forward to the next opportunity to come to Nashville. I haven't been there in a while. I'm trying to think if I might be coming down there with Her Highness the Countess, dude. Uh, at some yeah, time, dude. at some point, you soon. never know. It, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure uh, if it's on the calendar. We're, I know we're going to be in New Orleans. We're going to be Texas in New Orleans. Okay. Um, but uh, anyway, I I look forward to it. And please, anytime you're up here in New York, hit me up. Um, yeah, it's. It's a it's a fun it's a fun town. I always invite people to come, give me a buzz when they're in town, and uh, you know, and uh, have the New York experience because it's a. I'm I'm just you know loving being here. It's obviously not an easy place to be. It's expensive and crazy and crowded, but um, you know there really is no place like New York in my opinion. And <laughs> I'm happy that I've had the opportunity to spend some of my life here, and uh, you know it's been great. So. Anyway, thank you, brother. Hey, thank you, my friend. Uh, we'll be in touch soon, but have a have a great rest of your week. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you have it, my conversation with Daniel Glass. Uh, it was really a lot of fun preparing for this interview. If you go to danielglass.com, you'll see how his website is laid out. And if you want to explore the podcasts that he has, the different episodes... And if you want to see examples of the videos that he has available on DVD or other downloadable media uh, samples and reviews of his books, there's just so much to dig into, and he makes it uh, just accessible and available to, uh, to everyone. It's great. Uh, stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. We are super excited about our growth at uh, patreon.com slash working drummer. We've had uh, some new people sign up, and Zach and I are working in uh, incentivizing you to go there and help support the podcast through Patreon by providing some bonus content. Uh, through lessons and advice and and all different forms, video, PDFs uh, from former guests. We've got a handful of things up there so far. So at least once a month, hopefully uh, maybe a little bit more, we'll be able to bring you more of those things. But we thank all of you who've participated so far in Patreon. We also have a link to our PayPal account if you just feel like a one-time donation is more your speed. We're happy to do that. That helps keep the lights on and uh, keeps us focused on bringing you a new episode every week. So thanks again for participating, supporting us, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.
Oh, 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 oh,